Welcome to the Yale History Podcast, an interview series with historians from the Department of History at Yale University. I'm Kevin Gloodhill. With the end of the academic year at Yale, we've taken a short break from posting new episodes of the podcast in May and June. This left time for grading, for senior theses, for graduation. And we're back now with a series of episodes that will be coming out every two weeks over the course of the summer. My guest for today's episode is Dr. Jennifer Klein. Jennifer Klein is a professor of history at Yale University. Her work focuses on U.S. labor politics, social policy, and political economy in the 20th century. Dr. Klein's book, Caring for America, Home Health Workers in the Shadow of a Welfare State, was co-authored with Eileen Boris and is a history of home care workers and long-term care policy from the 1930s to the present. And her previous work for all these rights, business, labor, and shaping America's public welfare state is a study of how the U.S. developed a healthcare system based on private insurance and tied to employment, and is also a history of the alternative projects labor groups had sought to build for more equitable community-based care or public health insurance. She's a member of the editorial board of the journal International Labor and Working Class History and has served as its co-editor. Dr. Klein is a winner of the 2014 Hans Sigrist Prize, a major international prize conferred by the University of Bern and Hans Sigrist Foundation in Switzerland for her work on the theme, Women and Economic Precarity, Historical Perspectives. And she's contributed to numerous journals as well as in other forms of media, including publishing with Dissent, The New York Times, The American Prospect, Washington Post, The Nation, and New Labor Forum. Dr. Klein is currently working on carceral institutions, petrochemical production, and the geography of waste in southeastern Louisiana. Dr. Klein has recently published two separate articles that we'll be discussing today, which have tremendous significance for our current moment. They bring to bear her expertise on the topic of labor and labor relations and issues of public health and of the impact of COVID on labor in the United States. The first of these is entitled Inoculations, Social Politics of Time, Labor, and Public Good in COVID America, which she published in 2020 with the International Labor and Working Class History Journal. The second piece, which is co-authored with Shahrzad Habibi, was published in March of 2021 in the publication In the Public Interest. And it's called Austerity Versus Reinvestment, a Roadmap for a Broad-Based Connecticut Economic Recovery. So I'm very thankful to have Dr. Klein with me today to discuss these two articles and to discuss the crisis of COVID in the context of American labor and of the American economy. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jennifer Klein. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So today we're going to be discussing two articles that you've published um, within the last year. The first is a piece entitled Inoculations, the Social Politics of Time, Labor, and Public Good in COVID America from the journal International Labor and Working Class History. And this piece came out in November of 2020. And the second is um, from earlier this year, an article in the public interest called Austerity Versus Reinvestment, a Roadmap for Broad-Based Connecticut Economic Recovery, which you co-authored with Shahrzad Habibi of In the Public Interest. You know, these are two closely related pieces. You have one addressing labor conditions in contemporary America and the the impact of COVID in an environment of declining workers' power and, and rights over the last half century or so, as well as new avenues for political action among workers, 
um, and a focus on the home healthcare industry. And the second piece makes a case for state investment in Connecticut, um, as opposed to austerity policies as a response to the effects that COVID has had on, on workers in the state. So I wanted to start with this question, you know, to, to understand the impact of COVID on, on workers, you set the current crisis in the context of the last century or so of American labor history. And in the article inoculations in uh, the International Labor and Working Class History Journal, you discuss the labor movement of the early 20th century, the development of industrial democracy. And so I wanted to start with some background and ask, you know, what was this system referred to as industrial democracy? And how has this changed really since the second half of the 20th century? Well, I found that I wanted the opportunity to reflect on the unique generational moment that we occupy, in which we find ourselves wrestling with what democracy should look like, what an effective government does, and how can we reclaim a vision of the common good and pursue it. And so much of this has become tied to labor conditions, to the way we experience work, to the insecurity and the precarity that surrounds work. And that has really just blown open with the uh, threats and the damage of COVID, this once in a century pandemic. And so going back and thinking about the moment when labor security and labor rights and work stability emerged. It really happened in the 1930s, actually, with the New Deal, which saw the questions of political democracy as linked to what they thought of as industrial democracy. And so as Louis Brandeis had often said, as well as American reformers like Florence Kelly, our political democratic rights, such as the right to free speech, the right to freedom of association, the rights that we associate with the Bill of Rights, even enfranchisement and due process and representation, now had to have a 20th century analog in the workplace and in the economy. We had to have an industrial democracy that would allow workers to have that same set of free speech rights, freedom of assembly rights, and due process rights inside the workplace. And so that is really what fueled much of the New Deal legislation, not only around unionization explicitly, such as the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, but also the Social Security Act which would be premised upon both the notion of more stabilized employment and greater security for times when people couldn't work or even creating the very notion of retirement and the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is what created the idea of the 40-hour work week. It finally realized the century-long struggle for the eight-hour day. And Together, these created the notion that there's going to be due process around hours, working conditions, and collective representation in the workplace 
that would be guaranteed and backstopped by the federal government. Industrial democracy had to be tied to the idea of economic security. In fact, industrial democracy, along with political democracy, these two forms of empowerment would enable workers and the working class in an organized fashion to achieve that economic security, partly through bargaining for higher wages, partly for bargaining for time off and the recognition that people were entitled to time off for leisure and recuperation and self-improvement and time with family, the, the, the goals that were always expressed in the eight-hour movement, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for what we will, which had been the longtime slogan of the eight-hour-day movement since the 19th century. So what would it take to get this economic security? It takes both organized people on the ground and the government's recognition that risk is something social and not individual and not something private, that the risks of unemployment, ill health, disability, even environmental factors, family difficulties, these are social risks and they're often beyond the control of any one person. And so with that recognition, that's what gave us the idea of social security and the real shift, not only in policies, but in political culture that understood that investment in common social policies would result in a greater degree of security across the board. Of course, there was still a lot to be struggled for. African-Americans, women, and many uh, Latinos were cut out of the Social Security Act because it did not cover sectors such as agriculture or domestic service or retail or nonprofits, you know, anything that wasn't obviously interstate commerce or that obviously employed Blacks and Latinos was purposefully excluded from the deal to appease Southern legislators. And the same thing was true of the Fair Labor Standards Act. But it did form a base that a base of rights and an articulation of economic and labor rights that groups could continue to fight over and expand over the next three or four decades. And indeed, that continued to be the case. So that by the 1970s, these programs had been expanded to a vast part of the population. The 40-hour work week came to be defined as the standard work week, and the minimum wage covered far more people. I want to ask then, as a second part of the kind of background to the arguments you make, what has changed then from the 1970s on and why? Well, there's a there's multiple shifts. First of all, the New Deal rights and the New Deal welfare state was premised upon a particular model of the economy and a particular assumption about who the worker was and the worker's experience. It's based on the model of a large-scale mass manufacturing economy with the assumption of the white male workers 
work experience as being the core and being the representative. And so if you worked for a big manufacturing company like General Motors or U.S. Steel or General Electric, then you could realize all the benefits of the New Deal state because you had this status called employee, which was the gateway now to all of these new benefits, and could be represented by a union that could also negotiate private health insurance, private pensions, increases in wages, and and the security that was brought through that public-private welfare state. So a couple of things happened in the 1960s and 70s. First of all, decline in manufacturing and the fact that manufacturers begin aggressively looking to get out from under this deal. So, you know, you often hear the phrase, well, in the in the late 1940s, after World War II, this labor management accord emerged. Labor and management agreed that they were going to provide these set of benefits for each other. Well, uh, it wasn't quite so harmonious as all that, and it was a lot more contentious than that. And so as soon as they had the opportunity, even starting in the late 50s, but certainly throughout the 60s, those big companies began looking for places they could relocate to get out from under those union contracts. And in some cases, it was going to the U.S. South, to Mississippi, or to Alabama, or to the Carolinas, places that remained non-union because of the defeat of the movement, the union movement there. Or even in the 70s, again, starting to go abroad to Mexico or to Taiwan or elsewhere. So you begin to get the disappearance of manufacturing jobs. At the same time, there's the growth of the service sector and the public sector. Now, the public sector had never been covered by those New Deal rights. And so now there's a much bigger struggle to figure out, all right, can we create public sector worker unions? Can we win those rights at the state level to do so? And what about workers in all these service sector workplaces in retail stores and restaurants, hospitals, nursing homes, all of these places that had remained outside of the changes of that so-called standardized workplace. Well, in the 60s and 70s, they actually began to, to win those rights. Hospital workers organized, teachers organized, all kinds of city workers and state workers organized. And what's one of the most famous strikes in American history? Well, it's the sanitation worker strike in Memphis, where Martin Luther King ultimately was assassinated when he came to support um, the workers in 68. So these workers did begin to gain rights, and they did finally begin to change the terms of that employment to win a 40-hour work week, win the weekend, the time off, all of the things that we thought had become typical of American employment, but these people had remained outside. And so they began to shift that. Here's the third thing that's crucial about the 70s. As American production became less competitive globally, 
Anne was hit by the energy crisis. And there's a crisis of profit margin being squeezed. They decided it was time to go on the offensive against unions entirely. And so a new industry emerged in the 1970s called the labor management consulting industry, also known as the, quote, strike avoidance industry. And so these were labor management consultants and law firms that began to train businesses on how to resist unionism, how to break up strikes and undermine strikes, and even how to decertify their own union. And this becomes very unique to the United States because it ultimately becomes a multi-billion dollar industry. Okay, this is actually unique to the United States that we have an entire legitimate sector of the economy that is specifically dedicated to busting unions, undermining any capability of the union law to function in the benefit of workers, and to sever the link between workers and welfare state benefits like unemployment compensation. So that's what that sector does. And it's very successful. They have training seminars and they write textbooks and they come in as consultants. So that's, I guess I would say, the third thing that happens. It's crucial about the 70s. And then the fourth thing, I think I said third before, but I'm now on fourth. So the fourth crucial process that was underway for us to think about was the transformation of American employment from full-time, full-year, long-term employment with a single company towards a temp model of employment. And initially, the temp agencies, like the Kelly Girl Agency, as Erin Hatton, a sociologist, writes about, emerged to provide female workers in times of heightened work. So for example, at tax time, if accountants needed extra clerical work or at Christmas season, if department stores needed extra salespeople, they would fill in um, with these temporary female workers. But Kelly Agency and then Manpower and other temp agencies began pushing into all sectors of the economy. And the temp agency, in addition to extending the, the group of workers that they would offer to firms into all kinds of fields, whether it was dental hygienists, bookkeeping, editing, or custodial services, it also began to change our understanding and ideological model of what American employment should be. So instead of seeing workers as assets to a company, a company should see them as liabilities that affected the bottom line cost. And if workers are your liability, then you should shed them. You should be able to offload whole departments of your firm in order to improve the bottom line and what you have to offer to your shareholders. So by the time we get to the late 20th century, return of the 20th century, we've moved into an era of widespread temporary employment, precarious employment, a kind of undulation of not enough 
work or too much work. Thank you. That was really helpful. I, I wanted to then pivot into to some of the major claims that you're making in these articles. And I wanted to ask, why then would the home healthcare industry in particular be a place to look at these dynamics uh, in the workforce? And, and what were the particular impacts of COVID in this labor environment? Yeah, as I found when I was writing my book, Caring for America, Home Health Workers in the Shadow of the Welfare State, which I co-authored with Eileen Boris, who's a professor at University of California, Santa Barbara, home care was an occupation that actually was developed by the government, both at the federal government level and at the at the city and county level, in order to provide services for the elderly, the chronically ill, and people with disabilities. So ever since the 1930s, this was actually a job that was that was paid for through various kinds of federal programs, starting with the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, and continuing through different welfare programs of the 20th century. And yet, because the workers worked in very private settings, that is somebody's home, doing intimate labors, getting people out of bed, bathing them, feeding them, and doing the labors that we expect mothers or wives or daughters to do out of love or obligation, the work was never really recognized as real work. And therefore, the women who did it lacked the status of employee, which, as I explained earlier, becomes the ticket to all these forms of security. And so even as this job grew through city welfare departments, state social service agencies, state agencies for the elderly and for the disabled, it remained outside of all these labor standards. It was not covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act. So the women were doing jobs that were not covered by minimum wage, that were not covered by maximum hours, that were not covered by overtime. So the job expanded during the Great Society and the War and Poverty, you know, thinking, okay, we'll put all these poor women to work in these jobs. And yet continuing into the 70s, they still remained outside of labor standards. And even when the Fair Labor Standards Act was amended in 1975, just as this workforce was beginning to boom and dramatically expand, they were cut out of the deal once again by kind of sleight of hand that instead of referring to them as home aides, nurses aides, or any of the terms that had existed, they were renamed, quote, elder companions. And what does companion imply? Well, a friendly neighbor, or, you know, who checks in, or a friend, a relative who sits around, but certainly doesn't do work and is not a breadwinner. And so, so they have continued to struggle with that non-recognition and that denial of their status as employees. And meanwhile, this became one of the fastest growing occupations in the nation, which is currently one of the largest occupations in the nation. In fact, there are more than 3 million people doing this job. So we're talking about far more than the auto and steel industry combined. And 
and more than that on top of that. So in a way, their um, marginal status, their insecurity has sort of become the paradigm for where other American jobs have headed. Now with COVID, it has doubled the risk that they are exposed to because they already faced a situation in many cases where they ex were expected to work for 24-hour shifts. And one of the things I found in my research was that in New York City, an organization and a group, a campaign called Ain't I a Woman had been trying to get the New York State Legislature to, to pass legislation prohibiting the 24-hour shift, which would seem so obviously humane and also jarringly anachronistic that we would need legislation in the 21st century to outlaw 24-hour peonage labor. But in fact, it has been stalled and stymied in the New York State Legislature. So this has already been a debilitating situation for such workers. And also they don't get paid for the full 24 hours. They only get paid for 12 or 13 hours. The rest of the night, they're expected to stay there on call. But they, again, you get this kind of ambiguity where it can be rendered as not working, but on call, but clearly in someone else's house and not home. So what happens, I think, with this is when COVID hits, it translates into intensified health risks and expectations for longer hours off the clock from nursing home aides and home care workers. And I think it doubles the kind of risk and exposure that they encounter. In fact, we could even say it triples the risk. I mean, because they're they're already doing, you know, strenuous labor without time off. They're now working with people susceptible to COVID and are exposed to COVID themselves, especially because home care workers and nursing home workers tend to have both jobs and switch between them. And the third way in which their risk I think is intensified is their inability to say no to these situations. And one of the mass movements that did emerge in the late 20th century, and in fact, really revived and transformed the labor movement was the unionization of care workers. They actually figured out a very successful strategy to unionize, even though they were dispersed workers who never saw each other, who worked in tens of thousands of different homes and different workspaces. They were able to compel the state to recognize them as doing public labor for the public need that the state had to support people um, who were aged or had disability. And so in some places, they achieved very successful engagement with the state. But the state could always take advantage of being able to ultimately say, one, you're too costly. And two, well, you know what? This isn't real work. We could just have 
mothers or wives or daughters do it and to withdraw those gains. And so now we have a kind of compounded crisis of care amid the COVID era that comes out of our changes in labor conditions and our divestment from public services and the public infrastructure and our lack of labor rights. Yeah, I was really interested then in a connection that I saw in in the article. You know, this use of terms like essential worker and frontline worker. And and I just wanted to ask what kind of work that language is doing in, in this environment. That's been one of the remarkable things for me to see because care workers, low wage service sector workers who are working, for example, as cashiers or stockers and stackers in supermarkets who um, are driving buses, they've for so long been treated as the marginal workers, as the people at the very margins of the American economy. We have valorized the work of people who work in manufacturing, and we have valorized the work of educated professionals. And yet, you know, for so long, either jobs that women were doing in the care economy or jobs that are feminized, jobs that are low-wage service sector jobs, or, you know, people trucking between routes late at night. These have been seen as on the margins of the American economy, and in fact, very often rendered invisible. And so I think actually it was historically significant to see these workers really brought into the light, made visible, and celebrated as essential to the functioning of the American economy. So I think certainly we should recognize that as historically significant and as positive. And it's also, you know, unique that they would take workers doing very different kinds of things, you know, blue collar work again, or white collar work, cashiers, nurses, people working in warehouses, delivering packages, and actually represent them together as frontline workers and as essential workers. The National Domestic Workers Alliance, which has been organizing both domestic workers and care workers for a number of years, has had a a potent slogan, which is, quote, we do the work that makes all other work possible. And I think that really came out in identifying all of these people now as essential workers. I think the term has a number of valences because It's highlighting the work that African-Americans do. It's highlighting the work that women do. It's showing this, that these are the people who bring consumer goods and food and basic necessities to us and even connect us to our common human experiences. So that recognition is significant. And also, again, it's not the usual type of celebration of masculine work that we get in our political culture, the construction worker with the hard hat or the big manufacturing worker. I think that's that's quite powerful because in fact, 
this is the center of the economy. The retail industry is the largest employer in the United States. On the other hand, I think it also was aimed at making sure there was no shift in power. That many of the tributes that companies put out through their commercials, their full page ads in the newspaper or their billboards were specifically aimed at heading off any shift in power. They emphasized self-sacrifice as if to say that low wage service workers, especially women and people of color, should be prepared to sacrifice themselves for others. So the rush to put all these public salutes to frontline workers, I think can be seen as a kind of class strategy on the part of corporate elites to make sure that workers' voices get muffled in this kind of gauzy haze of charitable impulses and service and wistful salutes. So corporate representations of frontline work in the COVID-19 era imply that the standardized workday codified by the New Deal's Fair Labor Standards Act can be stretched and it must be pulled and stretched and unshackled into this open-ended arbitrariness that characterized hospital work, nursing home, and domestic labor before labor standards. Or it could be pressed into shifting and precarious part-time shifts. So I think it's also up to us to see the way in which the pandemic is exposing not just the structural failures and inequities of market-based care, but also the structural evisceration of collective workers' rights and collective voices, and the structural evisceration of, you know, secure employment. Yeah, and building on that, I think both of the articles we're talking about today address possible responses to this kind of labor environment, both in terms of considering state investment in the article on austerity versus reinvestment in Connecticut, on new forms of organization in the article on the social politics of time, labor, and the public good. And I'm wondering if you could comment on on some of these potential responses and, and actions that you talk about in the two articles. Yeah, I like the way that you pull out that link, because it is trying to think about what would it mean for us to get back to some notion of the common public good, because this has been assaulted over the last three decades, I think both at the level of the state and what it is that the state does, and it's been assaulted at the level of work and unionism. So as I said, you know, one of the things that was important about the New Deal and economic security and industrial democracy that came out of it was the recognition that risk is social. And what I think COVID made us realize is that we had spent decades not only privatizing public services and public benefit, but also 
have been engaged in the privatization and individuation of risk. That the 20th century regulatory state and welfare state was built on the recognition, as I said, that risk like un unemployment or old age or illness are social. Over the last three decades, our political culture really shifted to the notion that privatization and individual risk would rest on the tenet that markets would more effectively distribute resources and regulations impede flexible adaptation and innovation and individuals should see themselves as consumers who would meet their own needs. And even though many people have not been able to save or compete or even work full-time, have not been able to hold on to housing or retirement security, job security, even food security, this ideology has still persisted and dismantled so many public institutions, including institutions of public health. You know, I'm doing the public health infrastructure. And so through COVID, you know, we realized that actually it turns out that to tackle a mass epidemic, that we need a public infrastructure to be able to do so. But what we found out is through austerity budgeting in the report within the public interest was that each of the times that budget austerity has been implemented through the state, first of all, the cuts in both services and jobs are, for the most part, permanent. And secondly, they have eliminated you know, the real gains that women and African-Americans made through public sector jobs, they have exacerbated income inequality and wealth by race and class, and they've increased people's insecurity. So all of the promised benefits that are supposed to come from budget austerity have, in fact, not manifested. So we see this in our physical infrastructure with the problems with bridges and roads, train jacks. We see this in our social infrastructure, in what has happened to schools and nursing homes and services for the disabled and all the types of care work that I was talking about. So we have to get back to thinking about how we're going to invest for our future needs. I don't think public services and public institutions should be seen as anachronistic. State services are not obsolete. In fact, we're gonna need these more than ever because if we think about the challenges that we have on the horizon regarding climate change, the potential for new pathogens to be introduced into the population, the aging of our population, which is very significant and we have not planned for school and childcare needs, medical care. These are all things that require public investment and even public workforces. They require investment and transparency and democratic input. Now on the workers side of things, I think some of the responses include movements to 
think about labor bargaining beyond the workplace. What happened in the United States coming out of World War II was collective bargaining with unions, which became very narrowed down to the level of a single plant and you know a single union or a single company in a single union. If you back up just a little earlier than that, which in fact was the subject of my first book for all these rights, and look at how in the 1930s, when the CIO union movement, that is the industrial union movement of the Congress of Industrial Organizations first emerged, they imagined unions building their own community social institutions, working in partnership to create community health centers, working in partnership to create community housing, garden housing, you know, building a whole range of social institutions and social programs that the union would take responsibility for to improve the security of the working class and would do so in conjunction with an active state and various forms of universal social insurance. But as business gained more leverage in the late 40s and in the 1950s, collective bargaining was pushed back and kind of siloed, right? It was siphoned down to this privatized level. So the collective bargaining really just became about a contract for a set of wages and a set of working conditions and a set of benefits for one set of workers. So the idea now among unions who can do this is to get back to what they call bargaining for the common good. First, making alliances with community organizations and leveraging the bargaining in the workplace to what working class people need in their neighborhoods and in their community and building community power. So an organization like the Los Angeles Association for a New Economy, imagining what it would be like for working class people to be able to gain determination over issues like water, economic development, healthcare, job scheduling through fair work week campaigns, and the impact of climate change. The same thing is true of bargaining for the common good. That bargaining shouldn't just be about, do you get this wage and this number of days off? That it should also be, what is the community going to gain from the work that they do for this institution that they work for? And so it gets back to the broader notion of industrial democracy, I would say of the 1940s, in which especially women who were union members understood that you need a political strategy and an economic strategy to gain security, that you work through legislation and policies and public investment, a democratically engaged citizenry, a democratic participatory system, and you work through collective power on the ground in the workplace and around it. And so I think we can start to, you know, reflect on how our democracy can move forward with those kinds of social investments in mind. Because 
something like COVID-19 is going to come back, we face a future of massive, massive challenges through climate change and through, you know, the fact that we do keep people alive longer and they live with chronic illness and they live with disability. So what I've learned actually in the research I've done as a labor historian who writes about social policy in the welfare state in my previous books for all these rights and caring for America in this article that I wrote about labor in the era of COVID. And the austerity thing is, first of all, that public institutions are not luxuries. They contribute to the many ways in which we thrive. A public budget should focus on what makes lives of human dignity and human flourishing possible. So our priorities can be rooted in that. And I'd like us to think about time. Think of how elegant and straightforward the claim of the 19th and early 20th century eight-hour day movement was. Eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. And that what we will was meant to encompass so many aspects of human life, whether it meant being with your family, being engaged in civic activities, self-education, religion, or even starting a political revolution. And we need to get back to thinking of time because we've lost control over time. We, in fact, have become a 24-hour-7 workforce, as the Fair Work Week initiative pointed out. Is that how we want to define American life? Is that a fulfilling life? So as we think about the politics of time, we should think of it in terms of a feminist restructuring of family life and a feminist restructuring of community. And we should think about what kinds of public and social commitments are necessary for inclusive and just communities. I want to thank you for bringing these perspectives and these insights today and for bringing them to bear on the labor relations of the present day and and the particular crises of COVID. Professor Klein, thank you so much. I'm so glad I got to have this conversation with you. Thank you. I'd like to thank Professor Klein again for joining me on today's podcast. I'd like to thank her for sharing her analysis of the history of labor relations in the modern United States, of the shifts that have taken place within the workplace since the 1970s, particularly its impacts on industries like home health care, the significance of this to discussions of class, of race, of gender in the United States, and for analyzing these in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic and the crises that it has brought about. For more information, I would recommend checking out Dr. Klein's articles in International Labor and Working Class History and in the Public Interest, as well as her two books, Caring for America, Home Health Workers in the Shadow of the Welfare State, which was co-authored with Eileen Boris and published with Oxford University Press in 2015, as well as her previous book, For All These Rights, Business, Labor, and the Shaping of America's Public-Private Welfare State from Princeton University Press in 2003. My thanks again to Dr. Klein. 
the music in today's podcast is the song Over the Water Humans Gather by Dr. Turtle. It carries a Creative Commons international license. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me again for the next episode of the Yale History Podcast.